May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. So we have businesses and employers reopening across New York and really across the country. And I know at our firm, we've been fielding uh, a lot of questions from clients about what they have to do to accommodate employees who may be apprehensive about coming back to the workplace for obvious reasons. So today I'm joined by Tara Carolyn, one of my partners in the labor and employment practice at our firm. Hi, Tara. Hi, Rich. Thank you for having me as a guest. I'm really delighted to have you on board. So we're going to talk about this, about accommodations and alternate work arrangements and the related employer obligations for employees who have really specific concerns about returning to the workplace. Now, on some level, I suppose everybody has a concern about returning to the workplace, right? Yes. All the more for people who are of a certain age or have underlying health conditions or childcare issues or, or even, as we said, generalized fear. So, First of all, let's start with this. We've been hearing about categories of individuals that are considered high risk if exposed to COVID-19. Can you take us through what those categories are, at least as they're considered sort of in the legal labor and employment field? Sure. Originally, the CDC had published a list of conditions that put an individual at a higher risk for severe illness due to exposure to COVID-19. And the CDC has defined severe illness as putting somebody at risk in terms of possibly requiring hospitalization, intensive care, or a ventilator to help them breathe, or even the risk of death. So they broke down a number of categories for employees concerning their own protection, as well as you know healthcare providers to be on alert for their patients. And employers are also need to consider these risks. Has the CDC revised that sort of original list of conditions? Yes, they have. Initially, they had stated that individuals 65 years or older at are a higher risk for severe illness, which still remains the case. But they've revised the guidance indicating that risk for severe illness from COVID increases with age. So it's not just now limited to people who are 65 years or older. So, for example, while individuals aged 85 or older are deemed to be at the greatest risk for severe illness from COVID-19, individuals in their 60s or 70s are at a higher risk than individuals in their 50s, and individuals in their 50s are at a higher risk than those in their 40s, and so on. Right. It's sort of a scale. The I mean, bluntly, the older you get, the higher the risk, I yes. suppose. Right. Absolutely. Yes. When we talk about underlying medical conditions, what is the CDC talking about? What are the underlying medical conditions that would put one at a heightened risk of COVID? Sure. Well, the CDC has now broken up their list into two categories, people of any age with underlying medical conditions who are at a higher risk for severe illness and those who may be at a higher risk for severe illness. So as of right now, the list of conditions that put people at an increased risk are chronic kidney disease, COPD, immunocompromised states, or a weakened immune system from solid organ transplants, obesity, severe heart conditions such as heart failure, coronary artery disease, 
sickle cell disease, type 2 diabetes. Those are all things we, we hear called comorbidities, right? Yes. Right. I hadn't heard that term before all of this started, but you now hear it a lot. Okay. Right. Yes. And then, and then oh, I'm sorry, were you done with the list? Yes. I was just going to go on to the list of conditions that might put a person at an increased risk. Okay. So what, what's on that one? So on that list, it includes asthma, cerebrovascular disease, cystic fibrosis, hypertension or high blood pressure, immunocompromised state or weakened immune system from blood or bone marrow transplant, immune deficiencies, HIV, neurologic conditions such as dementia, liver disease, pregnancy, pulmonary fibrosis, smoking, thalassemia, and type 1 diabetes. All right. So there's really a lot of different things that can put a employee at an increased risk and in a heightened condition. So let's talk now about the practical impact of that on employers who are trying to bring their employees back into the workplace physically. Mm -hmm. Where does that leave the employer? In general, employers continue to have an ongoing duty to provide reasonable accommodations to employees with disabilities unless doing so poses an undue hardship or the disability presents a direct threat that cannot be adequately mitigated by a reasonable accommodation. Additionally, employers in New York City also have an ongoing duty to provide accommodations to pregnant workers. When you talk about accommodations, reasonable accommodations, what do you mean? Can you give us some examples? Sure. It's any sort of accommodation that would allow an employee to perform the essential functions of their job. So, for example, teleworking, modifying an employee's work duties, changing their schedule, or even providing protective equipment beyond what the employer's general requirement would be. And as a legal matter, are employers required to provide those sort of accommodations for workers who are returning to the office? Yes, unless it would create an undue burden on the employer. I mean, at the very least, an employer is required to engage in what we know is considered a cooperative dialogue or an interactive dialogue, and both terms are used interchangeably. But there's a difference, though, in terms of what's an employer's requirement under the federal law as opposed to maybe a local law. So under federal anti-discrimination law, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act, if an employee does not request a reasonable accommodation, the ADA doesn't require or mandate that an employer take action. However, it's different for employers in New York City because the New York City Commission on Human Rights has taken the position that if an employer knows that an employee has a medical condition, that the employer is aware might place them at a higher risk for severe illness if they get COVID-19. The employer is required to engage the employee in a cooperative dialogue about the potential accommodation, even if the employee hasn't requested such accommodation. One thing that occurs to me is an employer could be put in sort of an awkward position where they have to start talking to employees about their medical conditions. Yes. Yes. It's a very, it's, it's a place that we haven't been in before because, well, COVID puts us in a very unique situation in that the list provided by the CDC is so long and employers have to be aware that those lists are going to be updated as we learn more about COVID. Let's see how else this might impact the employer. If an employer is looking to reduce the risk for a particular group of employees, like take pregnant employees or older employees, for example, mm-hmm. Can an employer now say, well, we're bringing all the workers back, but you have to stay at home? No, an employer cannot do that. They're prohibited from excluding an employee from the workplace solely because the employee has 
a disability that the CDC identifies as placing them or potentially placing them at a higher risk for severe illness if they get COVID-19. So you, you have to engage in the dialogue and you have to offer accommodations that are reasonable, but you can't necessarily impose those accommodations on somebody who doesn't want them. Correct. That's correct. What if the issue, the employee condition, poses a threat that can't be eliminated by a reasonable accommodation? Well, if the employee's disability poses a direct threat to themselves that can't be eliminated or reduced by a reasonable accommodation, then we could potentially exclude them. However, the direct threat requirement is a really high standard and can't solely be met based on the employee's condition just being on the CDC's list. Yeah. Now, you have employees that may be at a higher risk, and then I think you have another category, which are employees with family members that are at a higher risk for severe illness. What are employers' obligations in that kind of situation? Yeah, in general, an employer would not have an obligation to an employee under those circumstances. But for example, while the ADA prohibits associational discrimination, it does not require employers to provide accommodations for an employee's family member. Associational discrimination, meaning you can't discriminate against somebody based on their association with somebody else. Correct. Okay. Yes, thank you. But employers also need to be mindful that Leave for available to employees for the care of family members, for example, under local paid sick leave requirements like the Westchester County and New York City paid sick leave laws and under the federal FMLA, as well as New York State's Paid Sick Leave Act, which becomes effective this September. Additionally, New York State has advised employees that they may file complaints against their employers or places of work regarding COVID-19 regulations with the Department of Labor, the New York State Department of Labor, that is, among other reasons for being forced to work but when they have a particular concern because they have a family member who is part of a vulnerable population, which the Department of Labor has defined as somebody with an underlying health condition or over age 70, or if the employer is making them report to a work site when their job could be performed from home. So if I understand that correctly, while federal law doesn't require you to accommodate an employee for a sick family member, some of the New York laws might be a little more restrictive. Yes. And it would be based on the Department of Health guidelines that have been issued to help or to assist employers reopening during COVID. Right. I mean, as a general matter, New York State and New York City laws are more protective of employees than are the federal laws. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. Yeah. Does the New York Department of Labor say anything about whether non-essential workers can be forced to return to the office? Yes. It actually specifically indicates that employees who work for a non-essential business may not be forced to go to the work site or otherwise threatened if they do not work at a place other than their home. And it's, the Department of Labor has also made it really easy for employees to submit complaints about their employers or places of work. The Department of Labor has gone so far as providing a COVID-19 complaint form on its website, which may be submitted online. So they've made it very easy for employees to submit complaints. And we assume that there will be all sorts of complaints in the months ahead as this plays out, right? Yes, I would expect it. Okay. So now we've talked about the employees themselves who might have health concerns and family members with health concerns. Here's another thing. 
children. We have certainly in my house children who would ordinarily be at camp during the summer and aren't. And I know that's uh, that's true in many places. So with kids who aren't in school, what obligations do employers have with regard to parents who find themselves in that situation? Well, in general, there's no requirement that an employer provide, for example, a work-from-home accommodation for employees with children just because the school is out for summer. However, if and when employers are considering whether to grant or deny a request for, let's call it an alternative work arrangement by employees faced with child care issues, they need to be sure that they're not basing their decisions to grant or deny such arrangements based on gender stereotypes, for example, assuming that a male employee wouldn't actually be the one home caring for his children. Right. They can't let all the women work at home, but not the men, Correct. I guess is what you're saying. Yes. Wasn't a federal law recently passed that provides paid leave for parents with children home due to school closures? Yes. The Family First Coronavirus Response Act, or FICRA, requires covered employers to provide eligible employees with up to two weeks of paid sick leave and up to 10 weeks of paid expanded family and medical leave that may be taken if the employee is unable to work, including being unable to telework due to the employee's need to care for their child whose school or place of care is closed due to COVID-19-related reasons. Does that leave cover summer camps and programs? Yes. In late June, the U.S. Department of Labor issued a field assistance bulletin, which is guidance that's is supposed to help their investigators when they're doing, you know, when they're investigating complaints. And it dealt with when an employee may take leave under FICRA to care for the employee's child based on the closure of a summer camp, summer enrichment program, or other summer program for COVID-19 related reasons. And for purposes of this leave, a place of care is a physical location in which care is provided for the employee's child while the employee works and does include summer camps and summer enrichment programs. All right. Well, that might get us through the summer. I'm interested, you know, as we record this episode, Mm -hmm. we don't really know what's going to happen with schools in New York City or New York State or around the country. But there is some thought that some schools may be open on a part-time basis or not at all, Mm -hmm. but certainly that there are going to be more children at home more often this fall than there usually are. Mm-hmm. How do you see this, these provisions playing out as we head into the fall? Well, the requirements under FICRA in terms of this particular leave is, is extended currently through December 31st. So I don't know and I don't necessarily expect it to be extended beyond that, but employees will have the option to take this leave through the end of the year if schools open, or sorry, if they open and it's only part-time or they don't open at all. Right. But it's only 10 weeks worth of leave, right? Correct. Correct. So that's that's not going to cover you for the whole year. Right. I think employers are going to really have to make a determination based on whether the job can be done remotely. I mean, this leave isn't available to employees who can work remotely, but for those who can work remotely, I mean, employers are going to have to work with the employees in terms of whether that'll be an option for them. When you have an employee who's asking for this leave, what kind of information can the employer request? An employee who requests leave for this purpose must provide the employer with information in support of the need for leave, either orally or in writing, including an explanation for the reason of the leave and a statement that the employee is unable to work because of that reason, along with the employee's child's name, the name of the school or place of care, 
and a statement that no other suitable person is available to care for that child. All right. Let's move one step further because now we've talked about medical conditions and family Mm -hmm. members with medical conditions and the children being at home. We're also going to have a situation where there are just employees who are apprehensive about returning to the workplace. Yes. For, I mean, frankly, for perfectly good and valid reasons, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So what is an employer's requirement to accommodate a work-from-home request from someone who says, I just don't feel safe coming back to the office now? Well, in general, in pre-COVID, an employer did not normally have an obligation to accommodate employees who are not seeking a reasonable accommodation related to a disability or pregnancy or the like. Meaning in a pre-COVID world, there was no requirement on an employer to let somebody work from home. Right. You know, so long as there was no disability or, you know, associated condition. Right. But if an ordinary employee came in and said, I want to work at home two days a week, you didn't have to grant that. Correct. Okay. And and so has that changed now under the current scenario? Yes. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, employees can now file COVID-19 complaints with the New York State Department of Labor if they believe they're being forced to report to a work site when their job could be performed from home. Right. And they can do that just because of a generalized fear that, that hasn't, I mean, I would think the generalized fear could have nothing to do with the work site, but could be that I don't want to take public transportation to get to the work site. Correct. Yes. You know, the Department of Labor has this complaint form up on its website and it has information about it for employees, but we just haven't seen how it's going to play out yet in terms of what's a violation of the regulations if, you know, if an employer expresses a need to have the employees in the office, you know, or the work site. How does OSHA fit in with all of this? Well, OSHA has a general duties clause that requires employers to furnish its employees with employment in a place of employment, which are, quote unquote, free from recognized hazards that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm to their employees. And I I heard that as of June, OSHA had already received thousands of COVID-19 related complaints. And we just don't know how it's going to play out yet in terms of employees saying, well, I expressed a fear of coming back to work. And look, now I got sick from COVID and we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with those complaints. Right. So you're going to, you're going to have complaints in OSHA, complaints in the New York State Department of Labor, complaints in the United States Department of Labor, and mm-hmm. presumably you're also going to have some private litigation, right? Yes, I expect it. Yeah, you expect to see some class actions about the way employees are being handled under these circumstances? Yes, both class action and individual actions. I mean, individual actions will primarily come from individuals who have requested accommodations and, you know, class actions for employers who don't strictly follow the guidelines that are being promulgated by the CDC and OSHA and the New York State Department of Health and the New York City Department of Health. I mean, there's so many regulations for employers to comply with, and they just have to do their best to comply with them. They're just going to, they have to do it. And the Department of Health for New York has already stated that there won't be any waivers for, you know, compliance with these guidelines. All right. Well, that's a a minefield, so (laughs) to speak, for employers in the months ahead. Tara, tell us a little bit about your 
practice as a partner in our labor and employment group? Well, I generally represent employers and businesses in all aspects of labor and employment, whether it's wage and hour, employment discrimination, traditional labor side work. And I'm also a member of the firm's COVID-19 team. So I have been handling a lot of the issues with regard to return to work, with employers, safety reopening plans, you know, accommodations that we've discussed, and other considerations for returning the employees to the workplace. Very good. Can you help us with a closing argument or some takeaways for, I guess, employers in particular who are listening to this and trying to figure out how to handle all of these issues going forward? Sure. I mean, well, specific to accommodations, you really need to train supervisors and managers to recognize these requests and how to respond to them, whether the supervisor or manager will be involved in personally responding to the request or whether they need to just know that they need to report these requests to the employer's resources professional or whoever will be addressing the request in the organization. And secondly, communication with employees is important more now than ever. And lastly, as always, documentation is crucial. Employers need to document requests, responses, and all related communications with the employees. Yeah, I always think being an employer is is hard because just in general, there are a lot of rules and regulations that you have to consider and abide. And this situation sort of ramps that up to a new level. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree with that. It's it's very challenging. And I'm on the phone every day with clients who are trying to navigate all the considerations and the reg, you know, the regulations and just what's best for the employer and the employees for their safety. Right. So I think you have lots of good suggestions there for employers trying to deal with that. And for employees maybe to understand how complex and daunting this all is. Yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Tara. I really appreciate you being on an important topic and very timely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rich. It was a pleasure. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.